0: This is Sam of Historian Splaining a historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. And if you sign up at any level, even if it's just a dollar, you'll have access to my patron-only materials, including the previous Myth of the Month on culture, and all of my lectures in my series on the origins of the First World War, including the lectures on Bosnia and Germany. But this will be myth of the month number 23, UFOs. And this lecture is brought to you by the letter N. Now, I believe that UFOs may actually be the most difficult topic that I've ever tried to discuss on this podcast in its entire history of more than six years. In some ways, of course, it's related to and similar to a topic that I tackled on conspiracy theories. That was myth of the month number 20. But in some ways this one is even more difficult because while basically everyone can agree, even if they have negative pejorative associations with the phrase conspiracy theory, at least everyone can agree that conspiracies do happen. And as I pointed out, it's even a term under law. There's such a crime as conspiracy. When it comes to UFOs, of course, it's very much in dispute whether there really is any real thing that lies behind that category and behind the mythology that we have built up around this this idea of the UFO. And I'm sure that many people just looking at the title of this lecture will assume that that is my own position, that I'm here to analyze and debunk a sort of popular fable. But actually, as I've explained over and over again all through this series on Myths of the Month, to say that something is a myth in a historical sense is not necessarily to say that it is false. A myth is simply a story that people develop and share that serves to account for the world as we experience it. And myths can be true or false, or they can be a mixture of true and false. And I want to look at UFOs as a myth in this open and impartial sense. I wouldn't be the first person to undertake such an analysis. Some people who do follow UFOs may know that Carl Jung's final book that he published before his death in the 1950s was about UFOs as a modern myth. And more recently, the religion scholar Diana Walsh Pasulka, in her book American Cosmic, has tried to pick up on that line of argument and analysis and has cast the UFO as sort of the essential myth of the new technological era, in which we increasingly invest a sort of saving and cosmic power in the wonders of technology. Now, American Cosmic is a very uh, complicated, it's an interesting, elegantly written, but in many ways very complicated and confusing book, and I won't claim that its argument here is entirely straightforward or that I necessarily entirely agree with it she's coming at this phenomenon and she like many other ufologists as they're now called refers to ufos as a phenomenon right in this open abstract sense she approaches this phenomenon initially anthropologically that at least is her stated approach and frame of reference well what i want to do what i will try to do is approach this subject historically and to try to make a series of comments on it from a historical perspective. I cannot treat this subject in any way comprehensively. It's almost impossible just to wrap your arms around what we even mean when we talk about UFOs, all the associations, the images, the stories that have agglomerated on to this term that was initially coined again to try to be somehow neutral and open right unidentified flying objects right so what what could be <laughs> more unassuming and dry than that right and yet as we all know it's easy to label anything that you see, you, you know, a, a balloon, a bird you don't recognize and say, that's an unidentified flying object, right? It's, it's a sort of infinitely expandable category of things that maybe can be identified, but just provisionally haven't been so yet. And we all know that, in fact, when we use that phrase in the English language in the 21st century, we're instead conjuring up a much more specific and much more loaded set of associations right? Mysterious lights, craft flying through the sky, most often at night, connections with aliens, life from outer space, abductions, right? There's a much thicker mythology connected to the UFO as we think about it and talk about it today. And as a historian, I'm not going to try to write all of that out of the story. Clearly, that is part of the power of UFOs in actual history, Now, I have been reading sporadically about UFOs, really for the past couple of years, trying to approach it with an open mind, and I've tried to catch up and learn enough facts to hammer down what I can say about them over the past few weeks. And at the moment, I have a number of overdue library books strewn around my apartment. I have probably dozens of tabs and bookmarked articles open on my web browser, And the more I learn, of course, the more I realize it's impossible to sum up this subject in some clear, straightforward way or even to make a chronological narrative out of it. But what I can do is try to make a series of comments about why this is such a difficult subject to pin down or to analyze, which hopefully will help to convey why For one thing, so many scholars stay a million miles away from it and don't even attempt to talk about it. And why it is so controversial and divisive, right? This is one of the subjects, even if the stakes for everyday life are quite low, right? As many people say, I don't care if there are aliens, I need to pay the rent, which is totally fair enough. But even as just an abstract intellectual question, There is an enormous amount of emotion and entrenched opinions and instinctive reactions to the very mention of this subject in proportion to the actual concrete facts and knowledge that most people have about it. It has one of the most skewed ratios of opinion to knowledge of any subject that you could bring up in the modern world. Now, many of us surely know there are a lot of very entrenched and fanatical believers in UFOs, some of whom say that they themselves have seen or even come in close contact with UFOs. And as with any reported phenomenon, the rest of us, of course, have to be careful and skeptical and weigh the evidence. On the other hand, there are many people who simply dismiss the whole subject out of hand, often with very flimsy or obviously fallacious arguments. Somewhat notoriously, the physicist Stephen Hawking, in a 2008 TED Talk, discussed the question of whether humans are alone in the universe. And he said, quote, I am discounting reports of UFOs. Why would they appear to only cranks and weirdos? End quote. Now, it shouldn't need pointing out this is an obvious circular argument. He starts off with the position that he can ignore this category of reports, those dealing with UFOs, because of the people who are making them, because the people who report them are cranks and weirdos. Well, how do you know that the people who report seeing UFOs are cranks and weirdos. Well, you know that because they report seeing UFOs, right? It's just a simple closed circular loop. It's a classic fallacy. And yet even very intelligent and analytical people like Stephen Hawking can easily fall in to these obvious errors in reasoning rather than actually grappling with the evidence with an open mind. And I would say that people like Stephen Hawking and many others who put forward similar opinions about UFOs do so because that's what they see as sort of respectable, enlightened, right-thinking, right? They don't want to be caught buying into something disreputable that will lose them status and credibility in the intellectual circles that they want to travel in. Now, of course, to be fair to Stephen Hawking, when he made that comment in his TED Talk, he was specifically discussing the question of whether there is extraterrestrial life in the universe beyond Earth. So he may have been more specifically and narrowly saying he doesn't take UFO reports as relevant to that precise question. So to interpret his words charitably, we could say he's just discounting this set of reports as evidence on that specific question, which is a much less drastic and sweeping statement, right? Because as many UFO obsessives and researchers will say, the fact that UFOs are seen and encountered on Earth doesn't necessarily mean that they are extraterrestrial. There are many other possible explanations or hypotheses that one could put forward about what these things are and what they signify. And the close link between the UFO and the alien from outer space is a link that has been built mostly in popular culture and popular entertainment. So the idea that UFOs are from outer space is sometimes referred to by UFO experts or obsessives, as I'll call them, as the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And I'm not going to make any pronouncement here on whether or not that is a good explanation of people's reported sightings of UFOs. I'll just note that it is merely one hypothesis in the mix. Okay, now with all of those extensive preliminaries having been laid on the table, let me now shake myself out a bit and start trying to make a series of what I hope might be useful and illuminating comments about UFOs and why they are significant as a historical subject. And I will start, as I have done with many other difficult subjects in other lectures, I will start each of these comments by simply telling a story. This is history. It's made of stories. Okay, so the first comment about UFOs I'll begin with a story that starts on the night of March 25th, 1942. So on that night, a Polish flight crew set out on a mission flying in a Vickers-Wellington bomber plane, which went on a bombing run over the city of Essen in the Ruhr Valley of Western Germany. They were returning from this mission at night shortly before midnight when the rear gunner in the plane saw a bright light approaching the plane from behind. As it came closer, the gunner could see that it was not another plane. Rather, he perceived it as a bright, luminous, copper-colored ball, which over time came within less than 200 meters of the Vickers Wellington bomber. At that point, the gunner opened fire upon it. Tracer rounds from his cannons hit this round object, and they appeared to enter it, but with no effect. As a later Air Force internal report said, quote, Several projectiles seemed to enter the luminous disk, but without result, although the object was well within range, approximately 150 meters. End quote. The rounds apparently did not come out the other side. They did not do any damage to the object, and the object did not stop or slow down. The ball then suddenly shot forward, taking up a position alongside the bomber plane, tracking near its left wing tip. At this point, both the nose and rear gunners were able to open fire at it and fired away, but again to no effect. The pilot attempted evasive maneuvers, but could not shake the object off. The ball instead maneuvered with great precision and agility, staying close to their left flank. The ball then sprinted ahead, taking a position in front of the pilot. And then a few seconds later, it suddenly flew far off and out of sight. The crew of the plane were naturally amazed and bewildered. After returning to base, they reported what they had seen. A record was made of their report, but no action evidently was taken thereafter. This report was found decades later by the 21st century researcher Graham Rendell, who spent months poring through old Air Force intelligence files, flight logs, and squadron diaries, most of which were barely legible on flimsy and fragile paper. This one singular incident reported in this one report could, of course, just be dismissed if, say, a historian came across it. It could be dismissed as simply a singular strange and anomalous event, perhaps a misfired rocket, or a misperceived natural event like ball lightning that had been exaggerated and misperceived by a tired and strained crew, or perhaps even as a lie or a prank by some young airmen. However, this incident was not unique. Another crew, flying not far behind this Wellington bomber, was questioned, and they said that they had also encountered this same object but not reported it for fear of being disbelieved and ridiculed. More importantly, this reported incident was followed by other, separate but similar sightings over the next several years. In the spring of 1943, a fighter pilot from New Zealand, serving in the Royal Air Force, went on a sortie over North Africa in a Hawker hurricane. On his way back to the base, he was followed by a reddish-orange glowing orb which came up alongside his plane and tracked along near his wingtip even though it was so close he could not make out the distinct features of this flying object since it was glowing so brightly the object followed and matched his every move even as he undertook violent evasive maneuvers as he wrote in this report quote by turning suddenly and steeply I was able to chase the light around in a circle, until I could aim my four twenty millimeter cannons at it. This I did several times, until my ammunition was exhausted. But each time, I observed no apparent change in the behavior of the light. End quote. This glowing object finally disappeared. As he came back to his base, after landing, the pilot found out that several of his comrades had also had encounters with what they simply called the light, but they had not officially reported them. About a year and a half later, in early October 1944, an American crew from the United States' 422nd Night Fighter Squadron was flying a P-61 Black Widow over western Germany. A brightly glowing ball latched onto their tail. The pilot threw the plane into Evasive maneuvers, but he could not get away from the ball until he dove down into a bank of clouds. The plane's radar observer was severely shaken by the experience. A witness reported seeing him and described, quote, He was terrified, as white as a ghost. Something up there sure scared the hell out of him. He was nearly frantic when he got out of his aircraft. End quote. And he was described as, quote, Still sucking wind. 24 hours later. So this radar observer was displaying what we might now call symptoms of PTSD. But it's remarkable that according to this internal report this trauma came not from combat but from this strange encounter with an unrecognizable glowing object. This report in early October was then followed over the next six months by dozens, a total of over a hundred Other reports of similar strange lights, with the ability to fly at seemingly limitless speeds, to track planes with ease, to turn on a dime, making sudden sharp reversals, unlike any known aircraft or missiles, to appear and disappear at will, and to remain invisible to radar. These encounters were reported mostly in Western Europe, but also some in North Africa, the Eastern Front in Eastern Europe, and several in the Pacific theater. What is more, many further sightings and encounters were never reported until years later after the war for fear of being shamed or ridiculed. Or in some instances when airmen did tell their superiors about their encounters, those officers would simply laugh it off, asking, quote, have you been drinking? This attitude began to change in the last weeks of 1944. So one night in late November of that year, a crew with another U.S. Air Force unit, the 415th Squadron, or I should say Army Air Force unit, the 415th Squadron, flew a Bristol bowfighter over the Rhine River north of Strasbourg. They reported another encounter, this time with a group of eight to ten lights that seemed to fly together in formation and approach close to them. They radioed down to the ground radar station to ask what these objects were. Their response back from the ground radar station was, quote, You guys must be nuts. Nobody up there but your own plane. Ain't seeing things, are you? End quote. The pilot tried turning straight towards the lights in order to attack them head on, but they vanished. They then appeared again in a different spot and then repeatedly vanished and reappeared, for several minutes until the craft finally returned to base. According to later accounts, it was this particular squadron's radar observer named Donald Myers that started to call these strange reappearing lights, quote, Foo Fighters, invoking a nonsense word, Foo, which seems to have meant basically fake or phony or something close to that. By the end of December, the reports of these so called Foo Fighters were beginning to filter back to the home front in the United States, and they started to get some press attention. In January 1945, Time Magazine printed an article about the Foo Fighters. It associated the phenomenon specifically with the 415th Night Fighter Squadron. It claimed that the phenomenon had begun in November of 1944 and it implied or insinuated that the phenomenon was the result of highly advanced Nazi technology. This Nazi hypothesis, to explain the Foo Fighters, seemed at the time to make a great deal of sense, especially when in the later spring of 1945, they gradually died down and seemed to disappear as the war in Europe ended. However, in retrospect, There are many reasons to doubt that explanation. Firstly, the Foo Fighters never did any appreciable damage to any Allied aircraft. As far as anyone can tell, they were apparently harmless. Secondly, at the end of the war, the Allies undertook to study Nazi advanced technology, including very secret projects, and nothing that the Germans had came anywhere close to the capabilities ascribed to the Foo Fighters allies including british and americans seized documents bases and weapons factories and all the evidence showed that the germans had the v2 and similar rockets but these still were not even capable of launching from ground to air much less capable of tracking alongside a fast maneuvering plane at over 300 miles per hour in addition americans extensively questioned German scientists and technicians, largely with an eye to learn their technological innovations and shortly after to recruit them into American operations in so-called Operation Paperclip. And these German experts were just as flummoxed as the Allies were. They had no explanation for these reported encounters. Thirdly, another reason to doubt that this was Nazi technology is that in several cases, they had also been seen by pilots and airmen in the Pacific. And the Japanese had never been able to copy over and reproduce German high technology before the end of the war. So through 1945, Army intelligence tried to investigate and to get some sort of grasp on what the Foo Fighters were. Ultimately, they ruled out German high technology, as well as ball lightning, St. Elmo's fire, and all the other supposed natural occurrences, which were totally inadequate for accounting for what these aviators saw. Internal documents from within the Army Air Force and the OSS show that military intelligence was completely stumped. One internal report saying, quote, we have encountered a phenomenon we cannot explain. Now, lastly, the final reason to disbelieve that these Foo Fighters were German technology is that there are reasons to think that they didn't simply stop after the end of the war. So over the course of the year 1946, there were many sightings and reports of luminous so-called ghost rockets flying for hundreds of miles over Sweden. The Swedish military at points was able to track them flying as far as 800 miles four times as far as any known missiles or rockets at that time. Also in 1946, there were several reports of clusters of egg-shaped luminous objects flying in formations over South Australia. The following year in 1947, in June of that year, a U.S. Marine transport plane crashed in Washington state, and the military offered a $5,000 reward to anyone who could locate the crash site. So on June 24th of 1947, a private pilot from the nearby area named Kenneth Arnold, who was highly experienced, was planning to go to an air show in Oregon. And he took off from an airport near his home in Washington state. And then on his way southward, he flew around the Cascade Mountains, hoping to find any signs of the crashed transport. While flying, he said that he saw a series of bright flashes coming from the area of Mount Rainier. So he approached closer to the mountain, and he claims that he saw nine shiny, round, metallic objects flying in a diagonal echelon formation and rapidly banking, turning, flipping, and weaving around the mountains. At one point, he watched as they proceeded from one mountain landmark to another and he clocked them as moving at a speed of 1200 miles per hour about twice as fast as the fastest known planes in the world at that time. Soon after Kenneth Arnold told the local press about what he saw and local reporters found that several people in the area in Washington state also reported seeing similar objects from the ground. So the story was published and then quickly exploded across the country. With news reports saying that Kenneth Arnold had seen, quote, flying saucers. Although there is no proof, and Kenneth Arnold denied that he ever used that exact phrase, nonetheless, that is what was picked up and reproduced in the American press across the country. And this story immediately kicked off a so called flying saucer craze across the United States and some other countries, with pilots, amateur astronomers, and all kinds of ordinary people reporting strange flying craft or flying saucers, especially in the U.S. and particularly in the American West. The infamous Roswell incident in New Mexico took place just two weeks later, on July 5th. In this instance, the Air Force initially reported that they had recovered fragments of a so-called flying disc. But even after that story had been then officially debunked and rejected, the flying saucer craze continued for several years. In 1950, one farming couple in the town of McMinnville, Oregon, captured a flying saucer in photographs, which some experts to this day maintain are authentic, although like everything related to UFOs, this has been much debated and disputed with many complicated and conflicting arguments. But even putting that aside, in 1952, several disc or saucer-like objects were seen flying and hovering over Washington, D.C. Fighter planes from the Air Force bases outside of Washington were scrambled to respond, but the objects repeatedly disappeared, and then repeatedly reappeared and disappeared again over the course of several days. So over the course of these years, from the end of the war through 1952, the government tried more and more aggressively to get a handle on this phenomenon. And they formed a series of secretive commissions and operations such as Project Grudge and then later in the 1952 Project Blue Book to try to figure out what was going on and also to try to manage public perceptions and tamp down on the craze. And it was also in that year, 1952, that the Air Force first coined the term UFO, unidentified flying object, as a way to try to denote a broad, neutral, and non-sensational category to replace the more popular and more loaded flying saucer, which had taken on connotations of mysterious and possibly extraterrestrial high technology, and which some people thought were interstellar craft visiting from outer space. But nonetheless, UFO, which was coined, you could say, as a kind of technical euphemism, eventually took on all the same connotations. So that by the 1980s, there was just as much passion, emotion, and stigma attached to that phrase as there had been to flying saucers. And so in that decade, academics and scientists coined another phrase, UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, again trying to be neutral and technical, and this can be seen as a case of what's been come to be called the euphemism treadmill, as new terms are coined as sort of polite euphemisms, but then they come to be associated with the same range of ideas and feelings. And so they take on the same stigma and then have to be replaced with new euphemisms. Now, as it's used today, UAP covers a related but somewhat different semantic terrain, right? It doesn't Necessarily refer so much to strange objects or craft seen from the ground, but rather it's more often applied to strange objects or crafts seen by pilots in the air. And again, those who use it try to dissociate it from the baggage of the UFO, but one can expect that probably if the term UAP catches on and enters popular discourse, Then lore stories and ideas, especially relating to aliens, will probably attach to that as well. Okay, so what is important about all this and this whole series of stories I just told? Well, it's important to note that it was the events of 1947, particularly the Arnold sighting in Washington State and the Roswell incident in New Mexico, and then similar flying saucer reports from other places that captured the public imagination. And it was these stories and images that entered into the realm of folklore, popular myth and popular entertainment in a way that the Foo Fighters did not. And the question then is why is that? Well, there are several reasons probably for this disparity which relate to the specific context and the wartime context of the Foo Fighter sightings there is in general often a veil of ignorance of you could say blissful ignorance between the war front and civilian life fighters often come back from wars like especially the second world war with many stories and memories many of them often traumatic that they don't necessarily want to share and in particular strange puzzling stories from war can seem too distant and unreal to even discuss or take seriously in the civilian peacetime context. Furthermore, more specifically, the Foo fighters were seen only at night and from aircraft in flight. This made it almost impossible to measure and observe the Foo Fighters precisely or to photograph them. Now it happens that through the years as this subject has come up occasionally in magazines and the popular press, Some photos have been found and put forward, which seem to show fighter planes alongside glowing dots or fuzzy orbs, and these have sometimes been claimed as images of the Foo Fighters. But Graham Rendell, that researcher I mentioned before, observes that none of these can be connected or traced to specific incidents, and hence can't necessarily be verified as authentic images of the Foo Fighters. Whereas, in contrast, the flying saucers were more often seen from the ground, very often in daytime, where they were much easier to see and track with the eye, they could be observed on radar, and they were occasionally photographed. Additionally, because the Foo Fighter encounters happened during a cataclysmic war, they could never capture the news cycle. They were always overshadowed by events of the war. And finally, because of the wartime context, where there were aircraft and weapons of all sorts flying all around, nobody during World War II, it seems, thought to associate the Foo Fighters with aliens or outer space. Now, initially, this was true of the flying saucers as well. For the first several years, it doesn't seem that anyone alleged that these flying saucers were alien spacecraft but they came to be seen that way in the 1950s and that's the association of course that has stuck so all in all as a result the flying saucer has become iconic the image almost immediately conjured up in the popular mind by the very phrase UFO everyone in the modern West has heard of flying saucers while very few have heard of the Foo Fighters And even when I use that phrase, of course, most people are going to think first of the rock band. This is very ironic because as historical events go, it is the Foo Fighters that arguably ought to be taken more seriously. In the case of the Flying Saucers from 1947 to 53, one could argue that they are dubious. Or that they only belong to the realm of folklore and fantasy and should not be taken seriously as real phenomena because they were drummed up by the media and Hollywood and because, again, arguably, people may have made up sightings for the sake of notoriety or 15 minutes of fame. Now, to be clear, I do not personally agree with that argument. I don't think it is actually supported by the historical evidence, right? I I think it would be unfounded and unjustified to dismiss the flying saucer sightings of 1947 to 53 as simply fantasy and fable. I think that they are also a legitimate historical subject. But that aside, even still, with the case of the Foo Fighters, it is clear that there was no benefit at all to be gained from reporting these sightings and encounters. The main responses that these airmen expected and received were suspicion and shame. And as the reports themselves repeatedly attest, the encounters with Foo Fighters were underreported. Furthermore, these encounters in World War II were attested by many witnesses separately and independently. For example, the American pilot who reported in 1944 about his encounter with a Foo Fighter had no idea that RAF pilots in a different Air Force had reported seeing the same things in different places, such as over North Africa, more than two years earlier. And these reports came in repeatedly for years with no press attention and no sharing of intelligence about it until the last months of the war, no earlier than November 1944. So based on the evidence in the documentary record, I believe any historian should be able to say unequivocally, that those pilots in the Second World War saw something. And it wasn't the planet Venus, it wasn't swamp gas, it wasn't St. Elmo's fire or ball lightning, or any of these other totally inadequate explanations. They saw something, and to this day, no one can say what it was. So hence, the important takeaway from this, I think, is the difference in the legacies of these two phenomena. One is immortalized in modern mythology, while the Foo Fighters remain very obscure, even though the evidence by historical standards is stronger and more persuasive. And even though it is worth speculating, these two may actually be the same thing or be very closely connected. They're important commonalities, very shiny or luminous round objects traveling high in the air at very high speeds, sometimes alone and sometimes in clustered formations, making very sharp turns and maneuvers, appearing and disappearing abruptly, apparently at will, especially when approached. So, what does all of this show about UFOs as a historical phenomenon? Well, This story that I've tried to present of the Foo Fighters and their possible connection to flying saucers illustrates certain important patterns that one can see when one looks through supposed UFO sightings and reports in history. These reports tend to appear in waves clustered together in particular geographic areas and within a limited time period ranging from about two years to ten years. Each wave is different, but they still show certain persistent similarities and patterns in terms of the physical appearance and behavior of the objects that people claim to have seen. And yet, for whatever reasons, often social or political reasons, some of these waves of sightings enter into the common mythos of the modern world, while others are ignored or quickly forgotten. So the Foo Fighters in some I think help us to grasp the problem of historical memory, the inconsistency of memory and myth. Okay now for a second comment on the dynamics and complications of UFOs in history I'm going to start again with another story. This story comes from Northern Italy In the mid-1200s. Specifically, it comes from a chronicle of the city of Padova compiled by a scholar named Rolandino da Padova, who reportedly was educated at the University of Bologna in its early years, in the early 1200s, and then served as the senior and most respected professor of grammar and rhetoric at the University of Padova, and who compiled this chronicle which has generally been regarded as a fairly good, reliable historical source on the history of that city. And in this chronicle, Rolandino reportedly included under the year 1252, which would have been during his own lifetime, he recorded a report that witnesses in the city had seen, quote, a certain great star, like a comet, But it was not a comet, because it did not have a tail, and it was a portentous thing, because it looked almost as large as the moon, and it moved faster than the moon, but not as fast as falling stars, and indeed it was not the moon. It was observable for an hour, and then it vanished." So I'd like to talk first about where I found this particular little report, and then about the reasons why I picked it out for this comment. So I encountered this passage in a book called Wonders in the Sky, which was published in 2009, co-written by Jacques Vallée and Chris Obek. And Jacques Vallée is fairly notorious in UFO circles. He's a highly respected and accomplished astronomer and computer scientist. He was one of the crucial engineers in developing ARPANET, the forerunner to the Internet. And after having firmly established himself as a scientist, he began turning towards the study of UFOs and towards a series of evolving arguments about how to understand UFOs scientifically. And later in his career, he joined together with this British researcher, Chris Obeck, to publish the book Wonders in the Sky, which includes its bulk, is simply a collected series of 500 purported passages describing strange, unexplained, objects, lights, and sightings in the sky all through recorded history from antiquity up until 1880, which is where they cut off this particular study because, as they argue, the identification and analysis of UFOs becomes immensely more complicated in the age of flight once there are hot air balloons, airplanes, satellites, etc., So they put forward this collection of 500 instances as evidence that the UFO phenomenon, in the sense of strange appearances and behaviors of lights or objects or crafts in the sky, has been a constant occurrence through human history. Now, this is a very impressive work and very useful and valuable from the historical perspective. At the same time, I would caution that the book is not as historically rigorous or reliable as one might wish. When one looks at the citations of the sources from which Vallée and Obek drew these various quotations and passages, some of them actually do name a specific original primary source from which the passage supposedly was drawn and where it first appeared. Others do not. In particular, the book includes reports from many different countries around the world, most of them in Europe, but also a fair number from the ancient and medieval eras in East Asia, particularly China and Japan. Now, unfortunately, Obek and Valle, do not have direct knowledge of Chinese and Japanese languages. They did not do original study and research in those primary documents, and so they draw a great deal of these passages and quotations about strange objects in the sky or landing from the sky from modern secondary sources, such as UFO magazines like the Japanese magazine Brothers magazine, or from secondary books, such as the book by a Chinese scholar named Shi called La Chine et les Extraterrestres, or China and Extraterrestrials, which was published in French in the 1970s. And so those passages, even if in some points they do cite an actual original source, it has been translated supposedly from the original Chinese into French, and then by Valet from French into English. And I have seen, at least in one instance, that UFO obsessives on the internet have actually compared the translation that appears in Vale and Obeck's book and found that it is dubious when compared against the original Chinese source, and, and it may have been embellished or exaggerated beyond what that original source merits. So that is a heavy word of caution. Which is to say that as I read through some of the 500 collected instances in this book, I tried to sift out and discern which ones seemed to come from more specific, original, and verifiable sources. And that is one of the reasons why this particular passage stood out to me, because it does cite an actual historical chronicle that has been republished and translated through the years. The other reason why this passage stood out to me and why I wanted to begin with it is because of its tone, style, and content. This passage is very unusual, but not unique. It belongs to what I would describe as a small subset of reports and accounts that are sprinkled through this book, but that appear particularly often in certain time periods. So a very important quality that you see in this passage that I looked for and that struck me is the fact that it describes in a very literal way what was supposedly seen on this occasion in Padova in 1252, but it does not say what it was. It does not try to put a gloss or an explanation on it. And indeed, you can hear almost a tone of frustration in Rolandino's words, as he keeps trying to refute any easy or obvious explanation of what this thing was. It was not a comet. It didn't have a tail. It moved too fast. It was not the moon either. It's almost as if he's frustrated, saying, don't try to give me these easy explanations. This thing is unexplained. And in this way, I think this thing that Rolandino claims was seen over Padova fits very closely with the technical definition of what we now call a UFO, right? It was simply unexplained. And not only that, it, it fits very closely to even a narrow understanding of that category in the sense that it was unexplained at the time when it was seen and recorded in the 1200s. And it is still unexplained today. Now, as I said, this account from Rolandino is unusual, but not entirely unique. So sprinkled all through Obec and Vallée's book, you can see instances where observers or chroniclers of one sort or another have described something strange in the sky and have perhaps attached words, certain nouns or verbs to them that ostensibly are just trying to convey what they looked like or how they were acting, without necessarily explaining what they were or what they represented, if they were some sort of omen or portent. For example, there are some short passages collected from Roman chronicles. In Livy's History of Rome, there is a passage under the year 216 BC, which describes a strange sight seen in Apulia in southeastern Italy. And it says, quote, "At Arpi, shields had been seen in the sky, and the sun had appeared to be fighting with the moon. At Capena, two moons were visible in the daytime. end quote. Now, in a lot of ways, this short passage typifies a lot of occurrences that are recorded and collected from the Roman world. So objects seen in the sky are identified as shields, although it's not clear, if they actually literally thought these things were shields or if they were just describing their appearance and shape. And also, celestial bodies seem to appear multiple times and to move around in ways that look like battle or warfare. There's another passage from Plutarch's Lives, so a different chronicler describing events more than 100 years later, where Plutarch describes a strange sight seen in northeastern Italy in the area of Amelia in 103 BC. And Plutarch records, quote, during the war with the Cimbri, From Amelia and Todi, cities of Italy, it was reported that at night there had been seen in the heavens flaming spears and shields, which at first moved in different directions and then clashed together, assuming the formations and movements of men in battle, and finally some of them would give way, while others pressed on in pursuit, and all streamed away to the westward, end quote. So this passage from Plutarch can be seen, again, to really skirt the line, right? Does Plutarch really assert that this was an actual literal battle? Or is he simply saying this is what appeared to be happening based on these strange sights and these strange motions that they were acting out? Well, there are a number of instances like this from these ancient, mainly Roman sources. Then it seems in the Middle Ages, The surviving accounts actually become more numerous, and a number of them also appear to describe objects moving and behaving in a way that possibly represents battle or conflict, but more broadly and more fundamentally seem to reflect intelligent, guided motion, deliberate motion. For example, the Chronica Maiora, written in England by Matthew Paris, which has often been seen as an especially thorough and rigorous chronicle of the events of the 1200s in England, that makes great use of original sources and is a kind of forerunner to Renaissance humanism. This Chronicle of Matthew Paris claims that on July 24th, 1239, Quote, at dusk, but not when the stars came out. While the air was clear, serene and shining, a great star appeared. It was like a torch, rising from the south, and flying on both sides of it, there was emitted in the height of the sky a very great light. It turned towards the north in the airy region, not quickly, nor indeed with speed, but exactly as if it wished to ascend to a place high in the air, end quote. So again, it's interesting to note almost an ambivalence here in, in the text, right? Describing emotion as if it wished. It appears to be following an intention. It appears to act somehow intentionally or intelligently. But again, Matthew Paris uses this careful hedging phrase as if, not outright stating that that's what it was, but only that that is what it seems like. So that event that Matthew Paris claims to have happened in England was in 1239. The supposed sighting in Padova that I read about earlier was in 1252, 13 years later. And then the year after that, in 1253, according to the Annales de Burton, so the internal annals or records of the Burton Abbey in England, on October 14th, 1253, Quote, "About the hour of vespers, the sky being clear, suddenly a large bright star appeared out of a black cloud with two smaller stars in the vicinity. A battle royal soon commenced, the small stars charging the great star again and again, so that it began to diminish in size, and sparks of fire fell from the combatants. This continued for a considerable time." And at last the spectators, stupefied by fear and wonder, and ignorant of what it might portend, fled. So again, this passage is interesting in that it doesn't try to put some interpretation that this was some sort of religious or cosmic event. It doesn't describe any human or angel figures or a message or words. It just fairly dryly and technically describes the shape and movement of what was seen with no gloss on it except that it seems like a battle and it inspired fear. So these rather similar accounts appear, it seems, repeatedly in several different chronicles independently in roughly the same time period in the mid-1200s. Now it happens that Valet and Obeck's book, Wonders in the Sky, also includes in it, as I said, several accounts some of them quite detailed and elaborate, that are purportedly drawn from texts from China and Japan. And most of these I am not even going to talk about because I don't see them as historically reliable enough. However, one exception that I'll make is a passage that purportedly was drawn from the Azuma Kagami, which is an actual chronicle of events in Japan during the Kamakura shogunate, basically from 1180 through the early and mid-1200s. So again, roughly the same time period that we've been talking about in Europe. And the Azuma Kagami records under the date of October 2nd, 1235, quote, about 8 p.m. by clear sky, a fortune teller named Suketoshi Abe, consultant to the shogun Yoitsune Fujiwara, reported to his palace that mysterious sources of light had been seen swinging and circling in the southwest. These lights moved in loops until the early hours of the morning. Yoretsuna ordered an investigation, and his astrology consultants, who were skilled in astronomy, conducted the study, and they said, quote, it is only the wind making the stars sway, end quote. So this story might seem perhaps a little bit too perfect almost as if it was either made up or massaged, to sound reminiscent of how UFO witnesses today will present their accounts to supposed scientific experts who then come up with very flimsy and strained naturalistic explanations. And obviously in retrospect, we can all see that the wind doesn't make stars sway, right? That's an obviously failed attempt to explain away what Suketoshi Abe supposedly saw. Now, nonetheless, sometimes stories from history are remarkably perfect. (laughs) And so while I cannot vouch personally for the authenticity of this story as it has been translated and reprinted in this book, I will at least give the benefit of the doubt that it may be based on a real source. But even putting that particular one aside, as one moves forward in time into the Renaissance age, many reports of strange comets and stars moving around the sky and acting strangely, multiplied. And in particular, it seems one can discern a distinctive wave of bizarre celestial events that took place supposedly in Central Europe, basically Germany, the Low Countries, and Switzerland in the 1560s to 70s. Now, as far as we can see in the surviving record, it seems as if this wave began in 1561, specifically on April 14th in the city of Nuremberg. So according to a 16th century news sheet or pamphlet printed at the time, the people in the city of Nuremberg on that particular day, and this was daytime, saw in the sky two large vertical cylinders, and a series of red, blue, and black spheres and disks that flew out of these cylinders. They then flew around the sky, striking into one another for about one hour, and then began to crash to the ground outside of the city, giving off large plumes of smoke. On August 7, 1566, in Basel in Switzerland, according to a contemporary news sheet, much like the one that was printed earlier in Nuremberg, quote, at sunrise were seen in the air numerous large black balls that flew at high speeds towards the sun, then turned around, hitting one another as if they were fighting. Many of them became red and fiery, and later they consumed themselves and were extinguished, End quote. Then the following spring, 1567, on April 7th, also again in Basel, another news sheet reported that a black sphere, appeared in the sky and covered over the face of the sun all day long. On September 26, 1568, at Tournai in Belgium, according to a later chronicle, quote, "...marvelous signs in the sky were seen from the 7th to the 12th hour in the evening. At first, great circles of fire were seen with rays emerging like suns dragging water. Afterwards, a black cloud was seen, and after that, great lights appeared." All of that being gone, men on horses were seen fighting each other, and it seems as if several musketeers were skirmishing against one another. Sparkles of fire were seen which illuminated the ground with a terrible shine. And then the last account that I would group together as part of this cluster of similar supposed sightings is from July twentieth, fifteen 1571 in Prague. So a later chronicle claims that people in the city were awoken by a heavy storm and banging sounds, and outside in the street they saw a procession, which made its way up Spalena Street into the city, and it included human-like figures, armed like soldiers, and oxen pulling a huge chariot with no wheels. This procession paused in front of the cathedral, where a fire was lit, and these human-like figures threw boxes and barrels, some of them resembling gunpowder barrels, into the fire resulting in a massive storm of rain and fire and the chariot-like object ascended into the air and disappeared so what to make of this series of reports right there are there clearly is a historical context that can help to make sense of why people described seeing the particular sorts of images and events that they claimed so germany in the late 1500s was in the midst of the gunpowder revolution as new powers were arising and gaining territory and dominance over the fragmented political landscape using this new frightening technology of gunpowder and it makes a great deal of sense that these sightings that people described involved basically round projectiles which could be seen as similar to cannonballs, striking into one another, creating scenes of battle, and also, in the instance of Nuremberg, flying out of tubes that could be likened to cannons. So you could see this as a kind of expression of anxiety over this new rising awesome and frightening power that was transforming the world around them. At the same time, however, why... (laughs) Why were these things recorded over and over again in this region and why did they involve so many strange details that really don't make sense and that seem extraordinary and that are not provided with any, again, any sort of gloss or explanation? Is it that people were all completely dreaming these events, uh, making them up out of whole cloth? Or was it that they were seeing something else, maybe something natural? or maybe something strange and anomalous, and they were putting their associations and interpretations on it by saying, I see a fighter on horseback, I see a chariot with no wheels, whatever that means, right? Th- this could be an instance of people trying to make sense of and in a way mythologize things that they otherwise don't understand. After about 1600, and especially as telescopes gradually become more widely available reports of strange lights and objects in the sky multiply and they tend to be you could say less elaborate right less theatrical than this cluster of very dramatic reports from central europe in the 1500s they're often much more narrow and precise but not necessarily then any easier to explain And after about 1700, there's a proliferating class of amateur astronomers. There are dozens of collected observations of strange objects, mostly round, traveling across the face of the sun or the moon, or sometimes less frequently traveling around the sky against the background of the firmament, moving at strange speeds and in strange pathways, often abruptly rising and descending or turning at sharp angles. These accounts are not exactly rare, but they're not exactly common either. They're too rare and unusual to ever be integrated into sort of normal astronomy. They continue to stand out as oddities and anomalies. And they're also occasionally recorded as being seen by ordinary observers on the ground and sometimes by multiple witnesses. So an interesting instance of this was recorded on September 7th, 1820 in France by François Arago, who was the director of the Paris Observatory, a very respected and by all accounts trustworthy astronomer and a scientist who in fact had discovered that moving electrical conductors produced a magnetic field. And on this particular day in 1820, Arago recorded that, quote, numerous people have seen during an eclipse of the moon, strange objects moving in straight lines. They were equally spaced and remained in line when they made turns. Their movements showed military precision, End quote. So you might notice here, this can sound weirdly reminiscent <laughs> of other reports that we've heard from the 20th century, right? Moving in a line, making sudden turns. And again, this reference to military precision. Again and again, observers seem to instinctively compare or liken these things that they see in the sky to weapons or fighters. There also in the 19th century were many sightings at sea as the number of people sailing around the world on sailing ships and then steamships continued to grow. And these sightings were often of luminous objects rising, falling, or sometimes hovering and staying stationary for hours at a time. For example, the British naturalist Andrew Bloxham, who again was considered a very trustworthy and respected source, he went on a voyage in the Pacific in 1825, and when passing near the Hawaiian Islands, he recorded, quote, "...about half past three o'clock this morning, the middle watch on deck was astonished to find everything around them suddenly illuminated." Turning their eyes eastward, they beheld a large, round, luminous body rising up about seven degrees, apparently from the water to the clouds, and falling again out of sight, and a second time rising and falling. It was the color of a red-hot cannon shot, and appeared about the size of the sun. It gave so great a light that a pin might be picked up on deck." Quote. So what can we make of this strange array of accounts that have been gathered together from across the centuries. Well, there are certain repeating themes. Many of these accounts came from largely trusted authorities, right? Chroniclers like Plutarch and Livy, scientists like Francois Arago, and I have not seen any sign that these accounts and descriptions were attacked and debunked as ridiculous at the time they were recorded or first published. And as for what they describe, there are certain similarities or common patterns that recur, such as in the shape. The objects are round, like balls and spheres, or discs or wafers. And especially often, they seem to be convex lens shapes. They're likened to shields, or in some cases, from Asia, umbrellas. They're also sometimes described, especially in Roman sources, as ships, although it's unclear exactly what this means were they seen in profile as ships with masts and prows or were they simply sort of vaguely oblong objects like a ship's hull as seen from below very occasionally much more rarely the strange objects were described as square or triangular most often they are seen as glowing and luminous and as either white or reddish like fire other colors are very rare and they're occasionally perceived as carrying human-like figures, although again, this is very rare. As for their motions and behavior, they make extended appearances, ranging from several minutes to several hours, or occasionally an entire day. They move in irregular patterns, often remaining stationary for extended periods before then moving, and their paths are include circles and often zigzags with abrupt turns and frequent stopping and starting or descending and rising again. And all of these are referred to as reasons why these objects are often perceived as being somehow deliberately and intentionally guided. Also, they're often perceived as clashing or colliding together and giving off flashes of light, which is often understood as combat. As for the times when they appear, as in the day and night cycle, they appear most often shortly before dawn or after dusk. And in the seasonal cycle, they appear all year, but with spikes particularly in mid-March, early August, and early October. So these last patterns I just described about the times when they often occur, these were compiled and analyzed by Valet and Obec themselves. The other observations are more my own. But this is just a brief summation you could say a, a, a brief fairly superficial description of these collected accounts that come from different times and places through history up until the age of flight now once the age of flight begins towards the end of the 19th century there are further often more rapid waves Of reported UFO sightings. There's the wave of so-called airship sightings mainly over the United States in 1896 to 97. It was in the middle of this sort of airship craze which you could see as a kind of earlier forerunner of the flying saucer craze. It was in the midst of this that the British writer H.G. Wells began writing War of the Worlds and it started to be printed in serial in 1897 and arguably that book Helped then to set the tone and shape people's perceptions of strange objects in the sky as possibly being from other planets. There are, as I described before, the Foo Fighters in the early 1940s and then the Flying Saucers in the late 1940s and early 50s. And then there have been further waves in different places and times since then, some of the better recorded ones being in the United States and Europe such as the wave in the Hudson Valley north of New York City in the 1980s, in Belgium in 1989 to 90, and in Arizona in 1996 to 97, which culminated in the Phoenix lights, a which is a term for the sighting of a large V-shaped craft or what appeared to be a large V-shaped craft with seven glowing amber lights that glided very slowly over central and southern arizona over the course of several hours in march 1997 and which was reported at the time by 911 calls so let's say that gives us our sort of greatest hits from the roman age right on up to the end of the 20th century what do we make of all of this can all of these things be connected and do they add up to something Well, for one thing, Jacques Vallée and other scholars following after him have argued on this basis that UFOs, in a strict technical sense of unidentified flying objects, have always been around as far back as we can see in human history. But one also has to add, I think, that their appearances seem to be irregular and sporadic, And hence, they have never been collected together into a single narrative. And moreover, it's important to note, Vallée, I think, never explicitly spells this out. It's important to note that these unidentified flying objects, in the narrow sense, are massively outnumbered by identified flying objects not only natural things like comets, meteors, birds, you know, things that we today would recognize as natural phenomena, but also by appearances of gods, angels, saints, divine chariots, the holy spirit, etc., etc., that are seen to come out of the sky and somehow descend upon the world or upon individual people. And so truly unidentified objects things that appeared that were not identified at the time and are still not accounted for today are evidently very rare by comparison and they are especially very rare right up until the 1940s but most especially before 1800 right the 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 truly unidentified objects really only start to become widely seen and reported in the telescopic age and then for some reason they seem to explode in the 1940s right, in the ways that I already described previously and there's been as far as I can see no apparent effort before the UFO craze of the mid 20th century there was no apparent effort to collect interpret and make sense of these unidentified objects nor to integrate them into the wider world picture But for whatever reason, this process of trying to collect, grapple with, and explain the unidentified flying objects only begins in the modern era, really beginning in 1947, when the sightings of anomalous unidentified objects seem to massively multiply and proliferate, and when people then quickly begin grouping them together into a new category and formulating a new myth. So the question then is, why is this? Why do unidentified flying objects go from rare sporadic occurrences that no one seems to really bother trying to collect, much less uh, mythologize? Why do they suddenly become a subject of obsession right in the middle of the 20th century? Well, there is an important point made by Jacques Vallée, which has been taken up by others like Diana Walsh Pasalka which basically argues that the very numerous accounts of visions and cosmic journeys of angel visitations and so on, that one can find in the religious literature of the ancient and medieval worlds and right up into the 18th century, that these can be very reminiscent of modern UFO accounts. The sort of beams of light being picked up into the air, being brought into Alternate worlds where one is given uh, secret wisdom, etc., etc. There are many very striking similarities. So, what does that mean, and how do you account for that? Well, one possible explanation is to say that the phenomenon, in the broad sense, the phenomenon of strange lights and objects appearing in the sky, which seem to be intelligently controlled, has actually been going on through all of human history. And Vallée and Obeck, in their book Wonders in the Sky, specifically argue, quote, every epoch has interpreted the phenomena in its own terms, often in a specific religious or political context. People have projected their worldview, fears, fantasies, and hopes into what they saw in the sky. They still do so today, end quote. So more or less what they are implying here and which I think they they spell out a bit more explicitly later in the book, is that when a mysterious light comes down from the sky in say 1647, people might say it's an angel, whereas if the same light comes down from the sky in 1947, people say it's a flying saucer from outer space, right? So people are projecting their own worldview Onto what is essentially an unknown, right? Something mysterious and alien in the metaphysical sense. Now, this basic hypothesis, you could say, which comes from Valle, then extends into Diana Walsh Pasalka's argument in her 2019 book that I've mentioned before, American Cosmic. And in this book, Pasalka argues that the UFO is the symbol of the defining hopes and ideals of modern times, which are invested in technology. And Pasolka invokes Heidegger in arguing that technology has become sort of the new salvific force of modern life, basically filling in the role that previously was inhabited by God or the gods. And she argues that, quote, the symbol for this new epoch is the UFO. So she's drawing here partly on Vallée and also on Carl Jung and his idea that the UFO mythology is a sort of nascent new religion and that the UFO is, quote, a technological angel. So hence, what people in ancient times might have called an angel or divine light is now seen as a spaceship. And Pasulka points out certain parallels between old and new belief systems where, for example, UFO crash sites like the one near Roswell, have become holy sites, places of pilgrimage and of celebration, and are perceived as a place of, as she calls it, hierophany, the revelation of that which is hidden, the revelation of cosmic secrets, like, say, the site of Our Lady of Fatima in Portugal. Okay, so all of this seems fair enough as far as it goes, right? But I would argue that Pasalka's book and her argument also overlook certain looming questions. I think that her argument is rather ahistorical, meaning divorced from the specific contexts and material realities of the point in history that they're talking about. So arguing that this new UFO mythology just somehow emerged organically out of the ethos or zeitgeist of the time ignores important tangible contexts. And it leaves open certain, certain looming questions. Firstly, and maybe most importantly, why did UFO sightings suddenly increase and proliferate in the mid-20th century, starting the 1940s? What was going on? What was the context and the conditions of that time? Now, the argument that some other UFO obsessives have put forward, which is worth considering, is the connection to nuclear technology and the nuclear age so modern ufos if we group them together to include the foo fighters they were first seen during and after world war ii and the reports of sightings have very often been linked to nuclear sites right so for instance roswell is right near the sites of the first of the manhattan project and the first atomic tests they're frequently seen around the american west as well as specifically over nuclear power plants in the u.s and in europe also i mentioned before the early sightings in 1946 of flying objects in south australia which happens to be the region where australia began its nuclear research program so some have argued that perhaps either extraterrestrials or some other sort of higher, more intelligent, non-human beings that live on Earth but are hidden became interested in human activity because of our development of nuclear technology. And that can serve then as the historical explanation for the emergence of the, this biggest wave of UFOs. Or perhaps if one wants to uh, still hold at arm's length the idea that the UFOs are real, or that there's any real historically or scientifically tangible cause behind them, and if one wants to see them merely as products of folklore, nonetheless one could say that the UFOs reflect anxieties and ambivalence around the dawn of the nuclear age. And the UFO may have been created as a sort of light counterpart to the dark and destructive atom bomb. You could see it as a technological angel of mercy as opposed to the angel of death, that is the nuclear weapon. Okay, so let's say that's my first concern from a historical point of view. Well, on a more mythological and anthropological level, I would say this argument, as Pasalka has developed it thus far, does not really grapple with the tension between older ways of interpreting mysterious cosmic flights and the newer ones. It seems to be just a simple, easy substitution. No longer one, now it's the other. And the book doesn't seem to ask why it is that a similar sighting in, say, 1650 would have been seen as an angel, whereas in 1950 it's a flying saucer. In other words, why people needed to invent new interpretations rather than simply relying on the old familiar ones. And I don't have an easy, straightforward answer to that, of course. But it does seem to relate to long-standing hard questions, which I've talked about occasionally before in this podcast, about evolving worldviews and secularization. So one might have usefully considered here not just Heidegger, but also Weber's classic argument about enchantment and disenchantment. Right, The modern world is stuck in a steel cage, right of disenchanted scientific rationalism and also newer arguments from more recent scholars about supposed cycles of disenchantment and reenchantment so in that context the ufo could be seen as an opportunity to reenchant a world that lacks mystery wonder and cosmic possibility so say in the middle ages people who saw prodigies in the sky Could fit them into a worldview that included a complex, multi layered cosmos, which included many conscious animated beings such as angels, demons, saints, fairies, etc., etc., all of whom operated quasi autonomously within a larger cosmic scheme guided by God's providence. Now, arguably, as that cosmos, as some have have argued like Weber as that cosmos was metaphysically simplified the universe had to be reconceived as being governed by simple mechanistic laws and hence many of these beings like angels and fairies and demons were relegated to the realm of mere children's tales now in this context the strange and prodigious sights seen in the sky became more mysterious and more inexplicable than they had been before Knowledge, knowledge and resources of interpretation had been lost. And hence a new mythology was needed, and specifically a mythology that could link these lights and objects, which do appear to be intelligently guided and which seem to appear from the sky and return to the sky to some different sort of celestial beings from the heavens, ones that also have some sort of mysterious cosmic wisdom or power But that's also fit within a simplified naturalistic one could even say scientific worldview so somehow modern people who saw these objects right and i okay i am entertaining the idea that these sightings are not purely made up people who saw these objects or lights had to somehow square the circle and only naturally evolved life from beyond earth or extraterrestrial life could fit the bill. So now I think that probably Diana Walsh Pasalka would see this hypothesis as friendly and as harmonizing with her findings and her arguments. And I cannot falter, of course, for not putting forward precisely the argument that I would have. But nonetheless, it does strike me as something of an absence, which points towards and relates to another issue or ambiguity with this book. So Pasalka somewhat skirts around the question of exactly what UFOs actually are and whether they are, in quotation marks, real. She claims that she can just bracket this question. So she doesn't take any position on are people really seeing these strange objects and do they have a tangible reality behind them or are they just imaginary? The book is deeply equivocal. So Pasalka repeatedly spells out that her project is strictly anthropological. She has set out only to study how people come to believe in UFOs and not to determine what the truth is. Yet at the same time, her project, as she describes it, veered in an unexpected direction, as often happens with research projects. So rather than doing what she might've initially imagined, studying ordinary folk who get pulled in to the UFO craze, Instead, she quickly was connected to a secretive network of experts, basically an elite circle of scientists, engineers, and other highly qualified and informed individuals who rigorously study what they call the phenomenon, and all of whom believe that there is a demonstrable physical reality to UFOs. And furthermore, most of these people whom she purportedly meets in interviews, most, though not all of them, also believe that the UFOs have the power to modify the human mind and body in ways that can have far-reaching effects. Among them, they can increase the capacity of one's imagination and creativity, hence enabling them, and again, many of these are scientists and engineers, enabling them to make scientific discoveries and inventions. Now, as Pasalka rightly points out, these people that she's describing in this secretive ufologist network, they are not. their ideas are not totally new. They lie in a long tradition, and many pioneers of space travel and aerospace, in fact, had similar beliefs. For instance, the Russian cosmists, who were spiritual descendants of theosophy and believed that they could communicate with immortal beings from extinct civilizations and who launched the Soviet space program, as well as Jack Parsons, the American rocketry engineer who founded the U.S. space program and who was a devotee of Aleister Crowley and of the magical cult Thelema and who performed occult rituals in order to receive what he believed were coded messages from invisible otherworldly beings and which he claimed inspired his plans and inventions for space travel. Okay, these are just just a couple documented historical facts, again, to throw in here. So in her book, Diana Walsh Pasulka keeps this network of scientists and inventors that she encounters in interviews, she keeps them anonymous. And for the most part, they want to keep their work undercover, either because they think the knowledge could be dangerous in the wrong hands, or because they don't want to be discredited and ostracized in the wider intellectual community. But nonetheless, Pasulka refers to one of them in particular, whom she simply calls James, whom she knows personally and trusts, both as a person and as a scientist, and who claims that he can show that specific physiological changes in the human body result from close encounters with UFOs. Now, as I said in the book, there there are extensive first-person narratives about her interactions and joint researches with the so-called James. Later, since this book was published, she has revealed that James is in fact Craig P. Nolan, a biologist and physiologist who's on the faculty of Stanford Medical School. Okay, so all of this appears and kind of takes over, really, the main body of Diana Walsh Basalka's book. And I would say the content of what she finds kind of overwhelms (laughs) her original research question about belief. So she keeps restating and emphasizing that she is only a neutral observer analyzing her subject's mode of acquiring belief, even as she herself expresses great respect and trust for some of these same subjects including James and there are frequent hints in the book that in fact she has been won over to their views she has been convinced but this comes out occasionally in sort of almost cheeky non-committal asides for example early in the book she describes being taken by one of these engineers to a site of a purported flying saucer crash in New Mexico, which she says is not Roswell. And she explains that in the view of these scientists, this site has become a place of hierophany, right, of the revelation of secrets from the heavens or the cosmos. And she writes, quote, to be clear, to suggest that the location to which we were headed in New Mexico functioned as the site of a hierophany is an interpretation. It is my interpretation. The site held no sacred value for me, although this has changed, end quote. So you might imagine me reading a passage like that and saying, what, this has changed? What do you mean, Diana? <laughs> what are you saying? Are you saying that now you too regard this site as a sacred site, as a place of hierophany? In what sense? Right. So there is, I think, a deep equivocation, right? And in a way, her stance of scholarly detachment allows her to equivocate, remaining noncommittal. And it gives credence to her book, both on the one hand as a scholarly work, right, maybe for the wider skeptical audience who can read it and say, this is just a detached impartial account of why UFO believers believe what they do. But at the same time, it also gives the book credence as a kind of personal conversion narrative so that those who are in the religion can see that she too has been converted and become a believer. At least that is what it seems like to me. That's my interpretation. Okay, so I just made a whole lot of comments about American Cosmic, which I did because I think it's an important book, the latest development in scholarship about UFOs that is available to the public. And why does this matter? Why why does this weird tension and equivocation in her book matter? Well, I would say... Broadly because it shows how fraught, ambiguous, and often unavoidably contradictory the scholarship on UFOs is, as it is trying to grapple with a subject that is scientific, mythical, and historical all at the same time. Okay. Now, finally, I'd like to make a third and final comment about UFOs which I will begin with another story. This story is about a particular image that has come to be called the Calvine photograph. So the story of the Calvine photograph properly begins in early September 1990 when two young Scottish men contacted the Scottish Daily Record, a widely read newspaper based in Glasgow, Scotland. And these two young men told the daily record the following story. They said that they had been working over the preceding summer at the Hydro Hotel, an old Victorian summer resort hotel in the town of Pitlochry in Perthshire in the central highlands of Scotland. They said that during that summer on the evening of August 4th, the two of them had gone out for a hike and they had gone out into the countryside outside Pitlockery, and when they were near the village of Calveen, they went off of the path to go up to the crest of a high hill that had a livestock fence running along it, so that they could look out to the scenery of pasture lands and hills to the north. When they reached this fence and looked out, they saw, hovering in the air, a large diamond-shaped craft, which they estimated to be at least 100 feet long, hovering silently, suspended over the landscape. As they watched, they heard the sound of airplanes and saw two military jets appear, approach close to the hovering craft, and circle around it. They had a camera on hand. They aimed at the hovering craft and took a series of six photographs. The two airplanes then left and shortly after the craft lifted away and out of sight. They then returned back to the hotel and kept the camera and photographic negatives safe for the rest of the summer. A few days later on September 10th, the two young men handed over this series of photographic negatives to the Scottish Daily Record. And the newspaper employees developed these negatives into a series of six photographic prints. They found that they did indeed show an object like the ones that the young men described. Most of them were fairly blurry, but one stood out as somewhat better and clearer, and it showed the object and an airplane suspended against a cloudy sky the newspaper began preparing to run a news report about this supposed sighting along with the six photographs. However, before it was published, government officials in the British government learned about this planned story. The Ministry of Defense quickly dispatched a press officer who flew to Glasgow in order to interview the journalists and the supposed witnesses. This press officer questioned the two young men who had been in contact and who had handed the photos over to the Scottish Daily Record. And in interviews many years later, this press officer recounted, quote, I had dealt with many UFO reports, but most were just of lights in the sky. It was obvious this one was different. When I asked what sort of noise it had made, the man said, it didn't make any noise at all. Up to that point, I wasn't treating it very seriously. But when he said it was silent, I suddenly realized there was no aircraft that I know of that is silent, End quote. This press officer then confiscated the photographic negatives and prints and handed them over to the Ministry of Defense in London. He heard nothing more about this case and was discouraged from asking any questions about it. Now, about 18 years later, in 2008, the British government ordered the Ministry of Defense to begin declassifying records relating to UFOs and to transfer these files and dossiers to the National Archives where in principle they would be publicly available. And so hundreds of these files then were revealed in several large tranches between 2009 and 2013. Journalists looked through these files and found many reports of apparent UFO sightings, of strange, unidentified crafts and objects, including many of which had been observed on radar. One journalist in particular, David Clark, noted the existence of a particular dossier concerning this Calvin incident. And it included a short summary report saying that photos had been taken. But the whole dossier was not scheduled to be declassified until later, until 2021. 30 years after the incident had been closed. Now this date, when this particular dossier should have been declassified in full, came and went, but the full dossier was never released. So David Clark and others began requesting more information from the National Archives, and they were told that the whole unredacted file would continue to be classified until 2071, so another 50 years in accordance with a policy to protect the privacy of purported witnesses and informants. When they asked more specifically about the photos, the National Archives told them that they simply weren't in the file. And indeed, the short summary report that one can read does say that the negatives were finally returned to the Scottish Daily Record, although it doesn't give details of exactly when or how or to whom. And the question remains open, does the Scottish Daily Record actually have those photographic negatives? It seems as if they couldn't possibly because then they would have certainly published them by now. And it's unclear if it's true that they really were returned, and if so, were they lost or discarded in the 30 years following. Also, the summary report from the National Archives says nothing about the photographic prints which supposedly at least had also been confiscated and handed over to the Ministry of Defense. And so it's unknown what became of those. Were they returned as well? Were they lost or destroyed by the government or by the newspaper? Well, in hopes of clearing up some of these questions, the journalist David Clark spoke with current employees of the Scottish Daily Record. And several of them do remember this story from more than 30 years ago, but are baffled as to why the story was never run and as to what happened to these photos. So the following year in 2022, David Clark set out to try to find the press officer who had actually gone to Glasgow, interviewed the witnesses, and confiscated the photographs. And he was able to identify him as Craig Lindsay, and he tracked him down. And when meeting, finally, Craig Lindsay told David Clark, quote, I have been waiting for someone to contact me about this for more than 30 years, End quote. Craig Lindsay then proceeded to produce from his own personal files something astonishing. It was an original print of one of the six photos that he had confiscated from the Scottish Daily Record, and which he had considered too important and for whatever reason he had chosen to keep in his own personal papers rather than hand over to the Ministry of Defense. He then gave the photographic print to David Clark. It was a black and white image, reasonably sharp, showing what appears to be a roughly diamond-shaped gray object, possibly like a saucer seen edge on, hovering against a cloudy sky, and in the background, just below and to the right, a smaller, fuzzy image of what appears to be a jet plane. Along the upper edge of the photographic print, one sees twigs and leaves on overhanging trees, and along the lower edge, the posts and wires of a cattle fence. David Clark asked Craig Lindsay if he believed that this photograph showed a flying saucer or some sort of extraterrestrial spaceship. Lindsay said no, and actually he claimed that he had heard rumors through the Ministry of Defense according to which Americans had been using a nearby airbase in Scotland in order to test out a top-secret hovercraft that they had developed as a targeting tool, and that they had been flying this hovercraft around this area of the Highlands, and that they were very upset when they learned that the craft had been seen and photographed by witnesses and hence this was the best explanation that Craig Lindsay could find for the pressure to track down these witnesses and photos and to hush the matter up. It happens that for many years previous to this, many UFO obsessives have attributed some sightings to a rumored so-called Aurora top-secret hovercraft developed supposedly by the U.S. military, but which has never been publicly acknowledged or definitively proved to exist. Nonetheless, this is Craig Lindsay's preferred explanation. There are some reasons to doubt this. For one thing, why would the Americans take a top-secret craft that they are determined that no one should see or photograph and fly it around the central highlands, including Perthshire, which, granted, is a rural area, more sparsely populated than most of the UK, but hardly uninhabited? Can these rumors that supposedly were passed on to Craig Lindsay and from Lindsay to David Clark actually be relied upon as a credible explanation of this sighting? But anyway, putting that aside, David Clark naturally wanted to test out and if possible verify the authenticity of this photo. So he gave it to a colleague of his, Andrew Robinson, who is a professor of photography at Sheffield Hallam University in England. Robinson produced a report in which he was able to identify the film and camera used and to examine the geometry, lighting, shadow, focus, and blurring, and so forth in the photo. And he concluded that it is an authentic photograph in the sense that it shows a real three-dimensional object actually suspended in air in front of the camera and that it had not been in any way doctored. And he wrote, quote, My conclusion is that the object is definitely in front of the camera, that is, it is not a fake produced in post-production, and its placement within the scene appears to be approximately halfway between the foreground fence and the plane in the background, End quote. Next, David Clark, of course, tried to find the actual witnesses to see whether they would vouch for their story as reported in the Ministry of Defense files the declassified dossier does not identify them. However, on the back of the photographic print that Lindsay gave to Clark is a handwritten note, presumably penned by an employee of the Scottish Daily Record, saying, quote, Copyright Kevin Russell. David Clark was able to actually find people who had worked at the Hydro Hotel in 1990 who remembered a colleague named Kevin Russell but he was not able to locate this individual. He reportedly searched for 10 months, trying to contact all the Kevin Russells in Scotland, but got nowhere. Also multiple public appeals received no response. Finally, the photograph in 2022 was published and was trumpeted by some journalists and commentators in the press as the best UFO photograph ever taken. Some breathlessly describe it as the holy grail that everyone had hoped for to prove the reality of UFOs. But really, anyone who has followed UFOs can say that this is a drastic overstatement. It is not a very clear or detailed image. There are others that have been taken that appear more, you could say, bulletproof as definite, authentic photographs, such as an aerial photo taken in Costa Rica in 1979, And soon UFO experts and obsessives raised doubts. For instance, the object in the photo is seen perfectly edge on in a way that obscures the complete three-dimensional shape of the object, even though the photographer clearly is on the ground looking upward. So it's impossible to say if it is a tetrahedron or a saucer shape or what because it is so perfectly pointing towards the camera. Also, no other witnesses have ever been found or have come forward to say that they saw the object in the area of Pitlochry or Calvine. and some have speculated that the photograph may have been staged. Specifically, there are those who have pointed out the similarities between this Calvin photo and other supposed UFO photos taken several years earlier in the 1980s in Puerto Rico, at least one of them also shows a saucer-shaped object in rather sharper detail, a hovering saucer-shaped object and a jet plane seen against the sky with trees above. And based on my own observation and judgment, for whatever it's worth, I would say that the composition of these two photographs is strangely similar. And when it comes to the Puerto Rican photo from the 1980s, The authors who came forward with that photograph have since admitted that it was a hoax and that they used small models and everyday objects suspended from tree branches by tiny fishing wire invisible to the camera so this naturally raises the question could the calvin photo be a similarly staged hoax and even a copycat of this model from puerto rico perhaps these young scottish men also used small objects to simulate what seems to be a craft and a model which would have been widely available to stand in for the Harrier jet in the background. This would make sense as a clever prank put forward by two young men. However, on the other hand it is unclear how Kevin Russell and his friend could have possibly seen these photographs from Puerto Rico which had not been published or or widely circulated and came from across the ocean and remember this is in the age before the internet so one could say this is still a complicated unresolved question what to make of this photo the two purported witnesses have never come forward why is that there are many possibilities they may be deceased they may have been effectively intimidated into silence we don't know everything that Craig Lindsay or others might have said to these two young men when they were interviewed in 1990 They may also be too embarrassed to speak, perhaps if it was a hoax, or there might be any combination of the three. Now, as for the photograph, there are at least three distinct possibilities on the table. It shows an unexplained, perhaps otherworldly UFO. It shows a top secret American hovercraft, or it is simply some object like a Christmas ornament that they hung up from a tree and photographed to look like a UFO. Any of these is still possible. I don't know. If I had to pick one of the three as my best guess, I would say it seems most likely that it's a hoax. But I cannot resolve this question without knowing more about very specialized fields of knowledge, in particular photographic analysis. For one thing, if this photograph was staged, and the objects are in fact small and close to the camera, would the experts who examined the photograph be able to tell that? Are they only able to estimate the proportions of distances from the lens, as Andrew Robinson spelled out in his conclusion? Or are they actually able to tell whether the object is just a few feet from the camera as opposed to hundreds of feet from the camera? Well, I don't know that, and based on the necessarily limited knowledge at my disposal, I simply can't say what to make of the Calvin photograph. Now, if that's the case, then why does this story matter? Why am I telling this story now? Well, this story demonstrates some very important facts. For one thing, it shows that whether the photographs were real or staged, government officials took the sighting and the photographs completely seriously, and once they assessed them to be important and significant they confiscated all of them, both the prints and the negatives, and put them away into a classified archive. They were later either lost or destroyed. The only reason why we are able to see and examine and debate about this so-called Calvin photograph today is because this one press officer, for whatever reason, chose to break the rules and save one of them in his own personal papers. We still don't know what became of the other five. And knowing these facts, we have to acknowledge that there is no telling how much other potentially important evidence has been confiscated and never seen again and witnesses warned off from sharing what they saw. In fact, it even further suggests, for one thing, that the best, most persuasive evidence is actually the least likely to be published and come to public light. If these had been simply a sloppy hoax and unconvincing, then probably Craig Lindsay never would have flown to Glasgow and confiscated them. More specifically, this incident corroborates what hundreds of other reported witnesses have said repeatedly over the past several decades. These witnesses describe after they come forward and often tell the proper authorities about something they've witnessed that they perceive as a UFO. They are questioned, intimidated, and they have their photographs and often cameras confiscated. Incidentally, the journalist Ross Coulthart Begins his book in plain sight about government policy and what you could describe as the government cover-up, although that you know that's a very loaded word. But government policy towards UFOs. He begins his book with the account of an Australian woman named Annie Carinaccio, who worked at a prison in Australia near the U.S. Naval Communications Base in that country called the Harold Holt Station. And who says that in 1991, she and two colleagues who were Australian police officers went to an informal social gathering at this American naval base. And then when they were returning to town at night, they saw a strange diamond-shaped craft flying and maneuvering around their car, making seemingly impossible turns and repeatedly taking off and landing. One of these police officers, according to Carinaccio, had a camera and took several pictures of the strange flying craft. The following day, Carinaccio was called into the base and harshly interrogated by U.S. military police officers who acted in a threatening way, one of them saying, quote, You do realize that what you saw was a weather balloon. End quote. Annie says that she refused and insisted that what she saw was a UFO, until one of the Australian police officers, who was also there in the room where she was being interrogated, said, quote, please shut up, shut up before you get us all killed, end quote. And according to Carnaccio, these two American military police also confiscated the camera and the film, which were never seen again. So this story that Ross Colthart includes in his book from Annie Carnaccio, A Named Witness, Sounds, of course, like a Hollywood cliché, right? The men in black come, they tell you to shut up, they tell you it was a weather balloon, etc. We've seen it dramatized many times. And I cannot say whether or not Annie Cardinaccio is telling the truth. But the declassified documents that have come out of the British Ministry of Defense and transferred to the National Archives do show that her account is not far-fetched that this is the way many witnesses have been approached in the United Kingdom and in other countries, including the United States. It's just that the UK, as it happens, has released a large portion of their older archives, much more so than, say, the US or Australia. So what's important about all this is that those who look for evidence or those who question why isn't there clearer evidence for UFOs have to understand that they are not working in an open, transparent information environment. The gathering, sharing, and reporting of evidence relating to what we call UFOs has always been a subject of government and military interest, and it has always been interfered with or manipulated by state organs. The internal documents and reports that have either been declassified or that have been leaked over the past 70 years, show that there is a wide disparity between government public messaging, including from the U.S. and U.K. governments, and their private observations and conclusions about UFOs. The U.S. and British governments have recognized UFOs as both real and serious, starting right from 1947 right from the beginning of what I described before as the flying saucer craze. In September 1947, General Nathan Twining, the head of the U.S. Air Material Command, penned an internal letter about the so-called flying disks, saying that they are, quote, "...something real and not visionary or fictitious." In late 1949, the U.S. Air Force Office of Special Investigations issued an internal report about luminous green balls that had been seen over military bases, and the report said, quote, the continued occurrence of unexplained phenomena of this nature in the vicinity of sensitive installations is cause for concern, End quote. And these sorts of internal findings and reports were largely what prompted the creation, as I mentioned before, of a series of investigative projects called Project SIGN, which was later expanded into Project Grudge, and then in the 50s, Project Blue Book. And Blue Book in particular collected thousands of reports, ultimately totaling over 12,000 reports, from astronomers, scientists, pilots, ordinary civilians, and most especially from military bases, including many strange objects and apparent crafts that had been seen and recorded on radar. Some of these cases were then confidently explained and accounted for as natural phenomena or as known aircraft. And in these instances, they tended to be reported or announced publicly, giving the impression that all cases of flying saucers or UFOs could simply be explained away. But meanwhile, many others, which were too difficult to explain, were simply ignored, filed away, and kept classified indefinitely. One interesting example, which I will describe here, comes from 1952. And it's significant for one thing because it was initiated by the Secretary of the Navy himself. And secondly, because it speaks to the possible or likely connection that I mentioned before, a connection between the Foo Fighters of World War II and the so-called Flying Saucers. So in 1952, the Secretary of the Navy, Dan Kimball, was flying from Hawaii to Guam alongside another plane carrying Admiral Arthur Radford. During this flight, according to Kimball, the pilot came back into the cabin in a state of excitation and said in Kimball's words, quote, a flying saucer had appeared out of nowhere, had flown a beam the secretary's plane for some distance, and had just raced ahead and shot up into the sky and out of sight. He and the co-pilot had both watched the phenomenon. Subsequent to this, they informed the crew of the Admiral's plane flying nearby. And the crew of that plane said, quote, that a flying saucer had just come down and flown alongside the wingtip, then had shot ahead and vanished into the sky, end quote. So this report was filed with Project Blue Book and no response was ever made. This also establishes a pattern which one can see continuing right up into recent years with the, you know, ARO and ATIP and these recent bodies set up to examine UAPs, as they're now called, is that these bodies often just become a black hole where the very difficult and baffling reports simply are filed and disappear and nothing ever comes of them. Project Blue Book also collected many publicly seen and widely reported cases. And these were often referred to the Harvard astronomer Donald Menzel, who becomes known as the most prominent debunker of UFOs and sort of the public face of this project to explain, or you could say explain away, UFOs. Menzel writes three books, appears several times on radio and television, arguing for mistaken natural phenomena as the explanation for UFOs, and he casts the whole UFO phenomenon as the result of delusions and mass hysteria. He does provide strong, effective explanations for many of them, right, as astronomical or weather phenomena. But there are also some explanations that he puts forward for widely seen public sightings, that are just vague, nonspecific, and basically hand-waving, like freak weather conditions and temperature inversions, without further specific explanation. And at least one UFO writer has claimed that Donald Menzel had covert relationships with the CIA and the NSA. I could not confirm that myself, And so I can't vouch for that except to say, I did see documents showing that he served on secret panels, scientific panels for the NSA. And arguably this relationship could have influenced his judgment. In 1950, the Canadian engineer, Wilbert Smith, who was tapped by the Canadian government to lead an investigation into UFOs, gave a classified report to the Canadian government relaying what he had learned from his contacts and counterparts in the United States' Research and Development Board, which was a body created to deal with atomic research. And in his summary, Wilbert Smith told the Canadian government that according to his contacts and information from the US, flying saucers exist. They are the most highly classified subject in the United States higher even than the H-bomb. Their modus operandi is unknown, but a small group was making an effort to investigate, led by Vannevar Bush, an engineer who had also been one of the founders of Raytheon. Two years later, in 1952, a CIA internal memo argued that many UFOs could be explained away as delusions and hoaxes, but several others, including those seen over the Los Alamos and Oak Ridge nuclear sites, were unexplainable. And the memo concluded, quote, here we run out of even blue yonder explanations that might be tenable, and we still are left with numbers of incredible reports from credible observers, End quote. I like that because it's a little poetic turn of phrase, I think. More reports continued to come in through the rest of the 1950s and through the 60s and 70s. I could give many, many examples. One can dredge them up from various books and articles. But perhaps the most dramatic of all that I have seen was actually recorded in the United Kingdom and came to the U.S. authorities through NATO channels. Specifically, it came from the RAF base Brentwaters in Suffolk, England, where on August 13th, 1956, people on the base saw 12 objects on radar approaching their location at extremely high speed, over 1,000 miles per hour. They then converged and hovered in formation over the base for about 15 minutes. As this was happening, they alerted the nearby RAF base, Lakenheath, where staff then saw a luminous object hovering over them as well. Shortly after it flew off, a fighter jet was scrambled in order to pursue it, and the pilot reportedly was able to lock onto what he called, quote, the clearest target I've ever seen on radar, but it then vanished and reappeared behind him. This entire report about the sightings at Brentwaters and, and Heath was classified until 1969 when it was released as part of the Condon Report on UFOs, but it has never been accounted for. So through these years, especially through the course of the 1950s, according to the scientist J. Allen Hynek, who served as a consultant to Project Blue Book, two schools of thought gradually formed within the task force and more widely in the intelligence and military services. And these two schools of thought were, one, it is all just mistakes and delusions, and two, it's extraterrestrials. And according to Hynek, the project never came to any conclusion or agreement about what was going on and what all of these sightings represented. But according to Hineck, it was the first interpretation. This is all mistakes and delusions. This is what was adopted as the public and quasi-official position of the American and British governments. So basically all public statements about UFOs and related phenomena have to be understood in this historical context as part of what government officials themselves internally called perception management right the effort to create certain ideas and impressions about ufos that were quite different from what internal government organs were actually thinking and saying so we can say perception management is an absolute definite well-documented historical fact with regard to UFOs. That is not controversial. Do you want to call this a cover-up? You know, obviously that's a loaded phrase. You think this is all a big (laughs) cover-up. So I won't use that phrase. You can use it if you want. I don't care. But this perception management is real. It was persistent and it did sometimes, it seems, cross over into active suppression and destruction of evidence. For example, when the UK Ministry of Defense was asked about accounts of alleged UFOs in the post-war era, and this question came up in the press as many old UFO documents, as I described, were declassified in the 2000s. When they were asked about these older incidents from the 1940s and 50s, the Ministry of Defense said that before 1967, all documents relating to UFOs were destroyed after five years. Why? I don't know. Furthermore, in 1995, on the American side, as public interest and debate about Roswell and what was really found at the Roswell site, the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, approached the Air Force and other agencies that should have preserved papers and records about The findings and the internal reports of what was found at Roswell. And the GIO found that papers relating to the initial investigation in 1947 had been destroyed without any authority or authorization. So I'm not going to speculate or take any position about what or wasn't found at Roswell, nor about what these strange objects or crafts were that were seen around military installations and aircraft really all around the world, all through the second half of the 20th century. But the question, naturally, is why would there be this desire to downplay or deny the UFOs? Why would it be so important for government and military organs to discourage or to, let's say, avoid sharing with the public the actual information and opinions that they had developed about UFOs? Well, there are plenty of possible reasons for this. One is to prevent mass hysteria. Governments don't like putting out information that they don't know how the public is going to react to. They're also, and this this has been pointed to by some journalists and commentators, and I think it's worth considering, there are also religious factors. What do these government officials themselves think when they see these strange objects behaving in ways that seem impossible for any human technology? are they comfortable <laughs> with thinking about or allowing others to think about what they are and what they represent? In particular, the U.S. Air Force is a major front line of sightings and reports. The air force, the atmosphere, the social atmosphere of the air force is very religious with a very strong strain of evangelical Christianity. And some say, even, including many who believe in UFOs, say that they believe that they are demonic and that they seem aimed to undermine the faith and lead people astray and hence there is great religious motivation in that case to want to keep them secret another more likely and bigger reason is simply the idea that these objects or sightings or whatever they are offer scientific and technological Advantages if they're studied and understood. And hence, they could be a possible threat to national security or a possible advantage if they can be understood and that knowledge can be exploited. And hence, there's plenty of reason for any government, whether it's the US or Britain or China or Brazil, to want to keep whatever information they have to themselves and to prevent other powers from gaining or exploiting that information. Now, lastly, probably the biggest reason of all, from my perspective, from what I have seen and read and from my understanding of history, the biggest reason of all is simply embarrassment. Why would a government want to admit that they have encountered something that they are confident is real, important, and meaningful, but they don't know what it is and there's nothing they can do about it? I don't think it's realistic to expect any state to ever do that. So that being said, what are the rest of us supposed to do? How are we supposed to come to grips? What are these things, and how can we possibly integrate them into our understanding of the world? More specifically, what sort of evidence can we grasp and try to use to build some sort of theory or interpretation of what these things are. Okay, so let's talk about evidences. What are evidences that actually matter, that actually can demonstrate something to us to get at the truth of this phenomenon? Well, mass sightings and photographs are really not useful, in my best estimation. So in the age of flight, as... Valle and Obeck rightly pointed out in the age of flight, there is all kinds of visual pollution in our sky, all sorts of things that the ordinary person on the ground cannot understand or identify. And there's tremendous room for confusion and misinterpretation. And in this age, discerning what things in the sky are and what is explainable and what is not is very difficult and complicated. And in this environment, for one thing, mass suggestion through media allows for bad interpretations of things in the sky to spread quickly and be reproduced. And most likely, many mass sightings that have occurred, especially over the last 40 years or so, are probably due not exactly to mass hysteria or psychosis, which I don't think is nearly as common as people sometimes think, but rather just due to mistaken interpretations of strange objects, maybe satellite trains, helicopters, and now drones especially, that can then spread and reproduce through a population in a short period of time. So mass sightings where many people report seeing the same thing are not necessarily meaningful. Now, photography, this is not likely to resolve anything either, in my opinion. Photography is a very blunt instrument. Right? It's something that was invented most of all for entertainment value, right? Simply being able to capture and reproduce an image of something that one sees in the everyday world. And that basically responds to the same visible light spectrum as the naked eye. This is not a great instrument for examining and investigating mysterious phenomena and it is especially bad at taking clear sharp images of glowing objects at night celestial photography is a specialized discipline right people it's true as as sometimes people point out everybody's got a camera now on their smartphone yeah well try taking a picture with your smartphone of a glowing object in the sky say the easiest one the moon. How easy is it to get a nice, clear, usable image of the moon on your phone, let alone some strange moving object that shows up irregularly and unexpectedly? These sort of everyday civilian cameras are just not up to the task. Now one could ask, okay, but yeah, but surely somebody, eventually, if so many people are seeing These UFOs, and there are thousands and thousands of witnesses. 10%, according to polls, 10% of the US population says they've seen a UFO. Surely someone would get a good image of one. Well, the fact is, there are many possible UFO photos and videos that are now posted on the internet all the time. You can just go look at the Reddit page on UFOs and scroll through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of photos and videos. But most of them, for one thing, are just too blurry, shaky, or indistinct to identify or interpret what they show. Trying to find a good, clear UFO photograph involves trying to find a needle in a massive haystack and a constantly moving and changing haystack. And the bottom line fact is, if you do see a clear, distinct UFO photograph, the so-called Holy Grail, right, as people described the Calvin photograph. It is probably fake because it is 100 times easier to produce a fake photo of a flying object in the night sky than it is to produce a real one. If you're staging a fake, you have control over the subject. You have control over the light, the direction. You can come up with almost any image you want if you know how to work with the materials and the medium as opposed to, what, standing around with your photographic equipment and hoping that the right UFO shows up at the right moment so that you get a clear picture of it? Now, of of course, there are probably counter-arguments you could make. You could still say, well, there are hundreds of amateur astronomers out there who are perfectly good at celestial photography. They should be able to snap a good one. And maybe someone did. Maybe someone did. But even if They posted it online what's the likelihood it's going to get attention and be taken seriously and what's the likelihood that we can ever really confidently authenticate it right and and know for certain that it's not a fake when it comes to the UFO sighting wave in Belgium in 1989 to 90 uh, I I will not take any position on whether there was anything authentically behind that UFO wave but there is one photograph that has sort of risen to the top and become the defining iconic image of that UFO wave. And recently the people who took it admitted it was a fake. They had created a three-dimensional object and suspended it in a controlled environment in order to produce something that basically looks like a glowing triangular craft in the sky. The, the fakes will always outpace the real ones. And the question then is, how can you ever sort through and figure out where the real one is? Okay, so let's say I have just dispatched with mass sightings and photography to my own satisfaction. Maybe others can disagree, of course. But what, in my view, really does matter? What is the evidence that can make a tangible difference? Well, mainly that is more recent and complete reports and observations from well-equipped, well-qualified observers who mostly are in the employ of the government and the military. They have the resources to make these more precise observations, including radar observations, and also to collect and analyze separate and independent eyewitness reports right not mass sightings of 100 people were all on this road and saw x and y not sightings that have been reported and recycled through media but separate independent eyewitness reports from people who independently attest seeing the same thing right that that is actual evidence and these sorts of Records of radar observations and of collected independent eyewitness reports, these are mostly going to come from government and military internal documents. They have the evidence that matters. They have the readings from radar and other fine instruments, and they have experienced eyewitnesses who should be able to discern UFOs from ordinary craft. So it is the state and militaries that have the resources and the wherewithal that has allowed them to gather actual concrete information through the years and this is why these internal records do matter. Now my interest here personally is as a historian and not as an activist and this is not exactly a call for transparency or disclosure as many people have advocated. What exactly here would be transparency and what exactly would it determine? It seems that some activists when they talk about disclosure They seem to think that the state has the real answers, in a sense, that there must be some internal state organ that knows what the UFOs are, where they come from. That might be true, but I would not bet on it, and I have not seen any persuasive evidence that that is true. Rather, what I think is clear is that the state and military have the data to know that they are real and that they cannot be accounted for, and that is enough right there. Historically speaking, those are significant and I think well-founded conclusions. Enough information has already been declassified or leaked to reconstruct a reasonable historical picture, according to which UFOs are certainly real enough to be an actual historical subject, even if they have not been and cannot be scientifically explained. One can compare them in this way to other significant phenomena such as medical conditions like autism or common human behaviors like homosexuality, which likewise have not been accounted for. We don't know why some people have autism and the rest of us don't. We don't know why some people are heterosexual and others are homosexual. Nobody's found a gene or mechanism by which these things work. And yet they are a prevalent enough part of the world we live in and of our shared social life that they're real and they are legitimate subjects of historical study and analysis. And I would say UFOs fall into the same category. The fact that they're not explained, that they haven't, we don't know the mechanisms by which they work doesn't mean they're not part of our world and they're not a historical topic. So again, this is not exactly a call for disclosure. I will leave that up to others to debate and decide. I'm not making any such call. And further, I would just observe, I don't want to be too judgmental here, but I would observe that it seems for some people at least, and the call for disclosure seems to reflect actually a longing for a ritualization. Right? A lot of people, whether they're UFO obsessives or just ordinary Impartial, neutral observers who say, I'm not going to believe it until someone presents the proof. What they're actually calling for is a ritualized public event, an announcement, rather like a public confession, right? Where some official looking person in a position of authority goes up behind a podium and says, to the microphones and the cameras. Yes, the UFOs are real or we've found aliens, etc. Well, I don't think that that is likely to happen. <laughs> I don't really see why that would happen. I don't I can't really picture a public official going up and saying, "Hey guys, uh, yeah, so there's like aliens or something, we don't really know what they are. They're around, they're doing things we don't know how or why, and there's nothing we can do about it." That's not really a thing you can announce, right? And so we're all left really in the position of having to make sense and having to use our own judgment to make sense of the evidence we do have. But really, clearly many people will not believe until that point, right? They need that sort of official stamp of approval, that permission to believe. Okay, so now in this context, I'll just make a few quick comments connected to this current event involving David Grush, right, the purported whistleblower, and his statements to the media and to Congress, right? I, I don't know <laughs> whether David Grush is telling the truth. Most of the world doesn't know. We're going to have to wait and see to some degree and see what does or does not result from his statements. But that being said, I will just make a few quick final comments summing up some things that I've, I've already said before in response to ideas or arguments that I've seen coming out kind of in, in media and popular discourse in reaction to David Grush and his purported revelations. So there are many things that people say often to kind of try to bat away or minimize the significance of the testimony that David Grush and two others gave earlier this year they'll say things like well why do the ufos only appear in the u.s okay well they don't only appear in the u.s i've you know i mentioned cases here in britain and australia which are relatively well documented there are many other purported sightings and reports from countries all over the world mexico brazil china one could go on and on another is if these aliens right because it's easy to just assume you know to to take the assumption from popular culture it's it's extraterrestrials if they're so advanced why do they crash okay well you know try thinking for 10 seconds (laughs) even the most advanced vehicles and technologies occasionally fail and if there have been thousands of well-attested well-recorded sightings of ufos or as they're now called uaps around military installations then even just one in a thousand mission failure would lead to a few crashes here and there right so that there no, no one they'd have to be magical right they'd have to be magical to simply never fail there can't be ufos because other planets are too far away for interstellar travel to be possible Okay. Well, there are many, many possible responses to this. One of which David Grush put forward, which is totally valid, which is whether or not these UFOs or U- UAPs are real, we don't know that they're extraterrestrial. There, there may be other things going on on earth, right? There might be other, if, if another life form is intelligent enough and it's also living on earth, It may just have ways of operating that stay out of our way and out of our sight, and we only see them or interact with them in very limited ways. One way this is possible is the so-called interdimensional hypothesis, which is to say, according to current physics, we experience and interact with the world according to four dimensions, right? The three dimensions of space and time. But there ought to be more dimensions than that. There ought to be other axes upon which things and events can move that we don't perceive and that we don't have any access to. But in theory, they should exist. So if that's true, there may be other worlds coexisting with our world right here at the same time, in the same place and time, that we just don't have direct access to. But if our physics was a thousand years or a million years more advanced, Maybe we could, right? So there's no necessary reason to assume if we encounter something that seems like super advanced technology beyond our understanding, there's no reason to necessarily assume it's coming from outer space, right? That is the thing that became the sort of widely shared popular idea beginning in the 1950s, but we just don't know. And there's no necessary reason to assume that. Another response that people make when it comes to David Grush is they say, well, everything he's saying is just hearsay. There's no actual concrete direct evidence. Well, that is true. <laughs> uh, what he's given is eyewitness testimony. and Well, I should say, the other witnesses gave direct eyewitness testimony about UAPs. David Grush gave secondhand hearsay alleging a super-secret, long-running government program to collect materials from alleged UAP crash sites. Now, that is a very grandiose claim, and it's true he hasn't shown a, a body, an object, even a photograph, right? However, there's a historical context behind this. There is already an accumulation of evidence about knowledge and observation of UFOs and UAPs going back decades, which appears by all normal historical standards to be very real. Grush is just, in part, he's just reconfirming things that others have said before. Now, when it comes to recovering physical objects and what he called biologics, that that is not attested in the documentary record. So that is, that is an, a relatively new claim that only a few people who purport to be leakers have forward before. However, David Grush says that he has handed over documents to the inspector general that that corroborate what he's saying. In other words, we don't have to take his word for it. What matters now is not David Grush or what he says or who he is or whether we like him or trust him. All that matters now is what do those documents say? Are they real and what do they say? Right? That's That's the real question. Furthermore, It's true that what we saw at that hearing was just eyewitness testimony. However, testimony is evidence, right? So, again, I'm a historian and my doctoral research was on the 18th century. We don't have any photographs from the 18th century. We don't have any video. If you're lucky, there might be some archaeological evidence that can be recovered somewhere that might accord with your argument or your narrative. But failing that, we have to reconstruct events based on the statements of purported witnesses. It's because of eyewitness statements that we know that there was a battle of Lexington and Concord. It's because of eyewitness statements that we know about Ben Franklin inventing bifocals. These are written down, right? There's, they're, they're in writing, but still, they are witness statements and claims. Really, if you're lucky, right, a a lot of it has to be, you know, tentatively reconstructed from secondary sources or from hearsay. If you're lucky, you get a direct eyewitness report, right? Eyewitness accounts are evidence. You just have to treat them critically. You just have to question, as historians always do every day, what is this person's perspective? Do they have an ulterior agenda, an ulterior motive? Are they in a position to really know what they're talking about? You have to weigh eyewitness testimony critically as one form of evidence, among others. And furthermore, a statement to the media, there have been many whistleblowers and leakers who have made all kinds of claims about aliens and UFOs to, to magazines or radio shows. Sworn testimony before Congress is new. That's never happened before. And that is an escalation. Okay. We're talking now about a witness who has put skin in the game to vouch before the whole world and under oath that what he's saying is true to the best of his knowledge. So that it's still only a statement and people can lie. People can lie under oath. People can lie to Congress, but it carries much bigger consequences. So this is an escalation. This is something new we haven't seen before. Okay, some people will say, oh, oh, okay, so now the government is talking about aliens and UFOs. Isn't this so convenient? Isn't this such a convenient distraction? Isn't the timing so perfect? Well, I never really fully understood this statement. Um, It's always true. That the government would like to distract us from things they don't want us to be talking about right there's always some failure going on some scandal a bad economy a war that's not going well anytime i don't really see why this year the middle of this year was somehow an especially convenient time for the government to want to come out with this new information okay Some people just in a generalized way say, well, I don't trust Congress or I don't trust the government. This is just what the government wants us to think. Well, A number one, the government is not a single unitary thing, right? There are different parties and factions with different agendas within a government as big and complicated as the United States government. They don't all want the same thing. And indeed, the historical record tends to show that in general, state organs really don't want us thinking or talking about ufos or uaps or speculating about what they are they really really don't and they've gone to certain lengths to discourage this topic david grush now making these claims okay maybe this is a manifestation of some sort of deep elaborate psyop within the government to suddenly reverse their policy and get us talking about ufos and uaps instead of not okay sure could be But the simpler explanation is that this is a manifestation of conflicting agendas between different branches of government. The executive branch has been collecting and analyzing information about these strange phenomena for decades. And according to Grush, and this accords with previous circumstances, according to Grush, the executive branch is not sharing this information with the legislative branch. And the legislative branch is not happy. And so part of why all of this is happening is because of a simple conflict and power struggle between different bodies within the government. Okay, isn't this so useful and convenient for the government to drum up fear and hence get more money for the Pentagon or the military? Okay, the Pentagon has more money than they know what to do with. Routinely every year, Congress showers them with bigger budgets than they even wanted or asked for. This is the routine. There is no need. (laughs) There's no need to cook up some weird elaborate conspiracy theory, which on the one hand is embarrassing to the executive branch because it seems to confirm that they have been lying to us, right? It's all a grand cover-up. There's no need for them to cook something like that up in order to get more money for the Pentagon. The Pentagon gets plenty of money, all that they want, and more, as it is. So that's just not a motive. Some people say, I think there are aliens, but I don't think they visit here. Okay, fine. Sure, that's a fine hypothesis. (laughs) This is all an open question. Uh, If you think there are aliens out there, but they don't come here, okay, uh, then you can give us your explanation of what you think these phenomena are. I'm all ears. And finally, some people say when they hear these grandiose claims coming from David Grush, they say, well, how could there have been this massive cover-up for so many years that was so successful? Well, I would say, for one thing, there are other observers who say it's not a successful cover-up, who say that there have been claims, rumors, leaks, exposures about ufos and about government knowledge of ufos repeatedly for 50 years this is a failed (laughs) cover-up and if what grush is saying is true then that's just another further failure and it's interesting in that 2008 ted talk by stephen hawking that i quoted before he also he dismissed this idea that the government has some sort of special scientific knowledge that they've gotten from the UFOs that they have been covering up. And he said, quote, if there is a government conspiracy to suppress the reports and keep for itself the scientific knowledge the aliens bring, it seems to have been a singularly ineffective policy, end quote. So that's a valid point of view, right? He's hearing about this stuff all the time, right? It's in the press. It's in the popular culture. If if this if, if it turns out to be true, then one could just as easily argue that shows how poor and ineffective this supposed cover-up has been, not how effective it's been. And furthermore, just in general, a cover-up is only successful until it's not. If this is the nail in the coffin, I don't know if it is. But if it turns out that there's truth to what Grush is saying and this becomes more widely known or demonstrated and more people are persuaded by it, well, that just means the cover-up was successful for a while and then it was not. There's nothing, again, there's nothing superhuman here about this idea that the government acknowledges certain things in private while denying them in public. That's not even a particularly unusual phenomenon, right? Governments hide things they know all the time. And sometimes it's just because they don't want to admit that they don't have control over events. Okay, but now finally, I'll just go back again to this general point. Many people won't believe, probably, until they see that press conference with a big White House or Pentagon medallion on the wall behind the podium. It is not until that public ritual that it will come across as real. And this goes back to a principle that I've stated before, that ultimately reality is social, right? social factors authority consensus status relationships and belonging these will always be fundamental in determining what is true to people right and i wouldn't say exactly that these social factors are more important than the evidence or that they overrule the evidence it's more that these social factors will always ultimately define what counts as evidence in the first place right who or what is to be trusted what ideas and arguments are fit to be taken seriously and discussed and where, and ultimately what is crazy and what is sane, right? It is our social relationships that really make our reality. And this is true when it comes to this UFO subject, just as it's always been true about all of the big debates, right? About geocentrism versus heliocentrism, about germ theory, There was a similar kind of uh, furious debate in the 19th century about this crazy idea that tiny invisible microbes actually have the power to make us sick or healthy. And it took decades for that sort of kooky idea to become accepted. And it happens that in relation to this, I recently read a very nice short book called The Discovery of the Germ, which recounts this long debate over germ theory and over this sort of radical idea that fundamental changes in the body as well as processes like decay and fermentation are caused by these invisible microbes. They don't simply show up in response to decay or to sickness, they are in fact the cause of it. And a German chemist, a very respected German chemist named Liebig became in the late 19th century the sort of main opponent to germ theory, which he saw as crazy and as simply going against Occam's razor, right? He maintained processes like sickness, aging, fermentation, decay, were just automatic chemical changes, and that the microbes, one shouldn't have to invoke microbes as somehow the the invisible cause. And the author Waller, in his book Discovery of the Germ, describes an incident where Liebig actually mocked germ theory and he writes quote so cocksure was Liebig of his explanation a purely chemical explanation that in 1839 he co-authored a short play entitled the riddle of vinous fermentation solved it ridiculed Schwann who was a promoter of germ theory and his allies by depicting a microorganism eating sugar then ejecting alcohol through its anus and carbon dioxide through its genitals end quote so some of you might know might see the irony right of this scene because in fact that is more or less what current science holds that microbes consume sugar and through their metabolism they expel alcohol and carbon dioxide but from the point of view of the 19th century this was an absurd idea right even though one can see microbes through microscopes, and one can find them everywhere, to think that they have that sort of power, that something that to the naked eye is invisible, that seems as if it should have no power over us, actually is a fundamental determinant of life and death. Right? And this was an absurd thought and really a scary thought to most people, including very well-informed experts in the 19th century but it took a great deal of persistence and argumentation over many years until this became the new consensus and until we forgot really that it was seen as a outlandish and absurd idea at one time now i don't know what's going to happen when it comes to ufos i don't know how they will be accounted for how they'll be explained or explained away and i don't know what they are But what I will say is that there is more than enough to know that something is happening and that it is still an unresolved task. There is still nowhere near a consensus understanding of what they are or how they work or how to fit them into our understanding of history. So finally, thank you so much for listening to all of this. This took me three days to record. Uh, I hope it's helpful or illuminating to some people. And if you want to hear all of my patron only lectures, including the previous myth of the month on culture, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description and sign up at any level. And finally, as I mentioned before, this lecture is brought to you by the letter N. So I'd now like to thank all of my current active patrons whose names begin with N. Nancy Schaefer, Nathaniel Webb, Nato Thompson, Nicholas Andre DeMarco, Nicole Morse, Nicholas Blanchard, Nina Amenta, Noah, and Noor DeRini. Thank you.